0: You're listening to The Product Edge, and I'm Jade Bennett, Australia's leading product management recruitment expert, founder of Middleton Executive, and a professional development and mindset coach. In this podcast, I take you on a journey into the minds of exceptional product leaders, entrepreneurs, creators, and hustlers. In each episode, I introduce you to experts in their field and my mission is to help every product professional level up and reach their full potential by providing you with the skills, insights, and tools that you need to excel in your career and gain your product edge. I'm
1: Georgia Hart, Principal Consultant at Middleton Executive and your guest host. I'm passionate about all things product and tech, and can't wait to explore some amazing topics with Australia's top product leaders. Joining me today is Brad Dunn. Brad is a product management executive with over 20 years of experience in the industry. He was former chief product officer at Whisper and CEO of both OHNO.ai and Nozori, a product development firm that works with companies like Airbnb, ASOP, and Samsung. Today, he's now the founder of a new content creator company called Grow Show and works with organizations on product strategy and building better decisions into their teams. Is it pronounced O-H-N-O dot I or is it Ono, Brad? No,
2: it's it's called, so it was called Ono and it was named after Taiichi Ono, who's the guy who came up with the lean manufacturing movement at Toyota. I'm glad I checked that. and 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 it was sort of related. It was sort of related because um, basically what the product did is it, it it enabled companies to see all of the organisational friction. So, um, it, it sort of stemmed from this idea that like I had this real bug there with company values because you go to these companies and people stick these values on the ball and like no one knows what they are and people don't believe in them and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I kind of thought, well, why don't we basically ask companies to define their mission, their values, and then any objectives that they have. And then we would just ask um, staff members once a week, you know, what's one thing stopping you from upholding these values? And so we would go off into the organisation and kind of harvest up all of this friction, like all of these things that are stopping companies from upholding their values and their mission and then reaching their objectives. And we would kind of surface that to management and then we would use this like five wise framework so that people could actually work on these issues within the company it was a bit like a bug tracker for companies so because companies are full of all these bugs right and we just thought like what typically happens is staff members try and raise them right they go ah oh, this is really crap here and this is terrible and um, and management can sort of avoid you know they can avoid stuff if it's a bit uncomfortable this was a way of just like collecting it all really objectively you could see which issues Um, were more serious. Um, It it was also kind of popular. Um, Sometimes management consulting companies would want to go into a company and this was like an easy thing for them to roll out ahead of time so that they could see where all the problems were instead of just hearing about it from like managers. was that? Um, Sorry, that that was like a long-winded answer to that question. (laughs) But it's basically named after, it's kind of roped up into this Toyota story. Um, which is kind of a digital version of this Gemba walk, which is where the executives would go out onto the factory floor to see where the problems were. So this was like a digitized version of doing that. It basically just came because I was frustrated about something. and me and (laughs) Me and my brother were like, let's start a company around it and let's do something
1: that's so cool. And look I'm um, Brad. I love how creative you are and I'm very excited to talk to you today to talk about how you've reinvented product prioritization. Before we do that do you mind just introducing yourself
2: for us for a moment? Yeah, sure. Just like w- what I've sort of been up to and what I do and what sort of Yeah. Thing. Um yeah, sure. So um yeah, I start I mean I started working in technology when I was sort of 17 um and just kind of got really lucky, frankly. I went to work for this Um, really, really cool uh, software business called Pretzel Logic in Perth. Uh, It was was sort of one of the fastest growing companies during the dot-com boom. And I was like just surrounded by really bright people. So that was kind of just how I got my start into the the software space really. Um, And then did a like got into more engine, you know, started doing like engineering and security um, related roles really just like network and server stuff mostly. And then, um, yeah, just kind of became more of a public-facing contributor in a software company because I could communicate. So I would go and talk to customers and stuff and then did some enterprise sales kind of roles for a while and then um, ended up starting a business with my family, um, which was Nazori, and we did that for about seven years. Um, and, yeah, we just just kind of... That forced me to basically learn how to build software right and that kind of got me stuck into the whole product management thing really is just just trying to work out what the answer to that question was. And then, you know, taught some taught some of the first courses at General Assembly about product management. And um yeah, just kind of been just trying to work out how to build things that people want to use since then really.
1: And um, what I'm really keen to understand today is, you know, there's really product Reinvention that you've essentially done around product product prioritization. Let me get that word right. <laughs> I've been saying that yeah. a lot today.
2: <laughs> yeah, we can um, talk about
1: that. Um, look, we know it's a product manager's job to make sure a company is working on the most important things first. But the reality is is you, you know, everything's important, everything needs to be done now. And there are some popular prioritization frameworks in the market to help. Product managers evaluate the importance of work, the ideas, customer requests, business requests, and try and eliminate wasteful practices to deliver customer value. So really keen to hear how in your journey at Whisper, you really invented the prioritization ideology and even built a new team, which was the product intelligence function. So where did that idea initially come from?
2: Yeah, so it it came from this one guy, actually, um, Brian Oakley, who's... Probably the smartest person I know. Um, so he was, he was doing a neuroscience PhD and I needed someone that could like do math on the team basically because um, we were building a financial model for the capital raise. So it was like getting kind of complicated and I needed like like an analyst that could do really well and just with those, those kinds of problems. Um, and Fiona, who was our head of AI at the time, had another neuroscience PhD on the team called Sally, um, and she was she was phenomenal. So I was like, Oh, let's get someone like that. Um, and the way it sort of started was I had sort of asked Brian, um, just just sort of this really simple question, like was which was really like, would it be possible to predict whether certain decisions that we were making within the teams were likely to hit objectives? Um that's kind of how it started. Um, one of the things I, I had noticed a little bit in product management was it sort of had this feeling about like the finance industry in the 90s and stuff. You had these hedge fund managers that were like making these decisions based on, you know, charismatic kind of histories of what they were able to do in the stock market. Maybe they had some success. So they just attribute the success that they have to their own genius and stuff. Um, and I, I, had, I had, my wife had worked in finance for a little while and I'd got to know some quantitative people and I just asked Brian like what if there was a way of actually predicting whether these choices that all the product managers were making actually had a higher probability of working than others because the way product managers typically think about choice is like they either use some framework like rice or something like that. Um, The challenges with frameworks like that is usually they don't incorporate all of the nuance that an organization has, right? So people use them, but then they just kind of abandon them because someone says something that, that where it doesn't apply, right? So I just kind of thought, well, what if we just turn it into this kind of mathematical model where we basically take all take in all these variables and we try and predict whether certain ideas will work before that they before we actually make them. Um, and so that was kind of the, the challenge. I just said, like, is this even possible? And we started working on this idea um, and, Brian had started to build these like probability models around certain choices working. Uh, and we just started playing with ideas and we started becoming obsessed with this idea as like, is there a perfect choice? Like, is, can you, can you guess whether that's true in the same way quants kind of break down a stock and say, you know, is this, do we predict whether this is going to go up or down? So we were trying to do that with decisions and we thought if we could get that baked into the process, Maybe it would have this really interesting effect on the way product managers made decisions. You know, it's like you're not making these decisions based on ego. You're kind of saying, "Well, there's a 77% probability that this is a better choice than that one." And so we started trying to build this. um, And you know, like we, I wouldn't say we totally got it all worked out. It's still a pretty new idea that that Brian and I talk about. You know, even to this day. Um, And then we started showing it to other companies, like we started showing- we showed some people out at Seek and some people out at CultureAmp. Um, I gave this big talk at McKinsey about it that uh, was just trying to get people to think more like you know, if you've ever seen that movie Moneyball, that's basically what we were trying to do. We were trying to build these models around certain choices. Uh, and yeah, like I think it's something we still kind of talk a little bit about and then Brian ended up picking up this book um, called Noise, which is by Danny Kahneman, which is the Nobel Prize winning genius. Uh, and a lot, of, funnily enough, a lot of the stuff that we were working on is kind of in that book. So you're really thinking about these two dimensions, noise and bias, and you're trying to work out how to make decisions through those dimensions. So, um, yeah, st- I'd still love to, I'd still f- love for it to be more of a formal thing. We keep talking about. Publishing something a bit more that people can follow. Um, Brian's written a, a really cool short explainer on his Medium blog about it. Uh, but it was awesome. It was super fun to work on. I, I like doing stuff like that as well, just thinking about, you know, things that we all do in this industry, and no one ever sits back and goes, Is this really, is it working? Um I think there's lots of good opportunities to just kind of rethink the way we do things.
1: Absolutely. And so what were the results that you saw from taking this new strategy? Uh
2: people didn't, they weren't super fans of it initially. <laughs> it, um because it's uh you we actually had to do lots of work. That was sort of the first thing. Um one of the things we do, maybe maybe I'll explain it a little bit clearer too, because I don't maybe it's not super clear. But when you have like an impact versus complexity matrix, which is usually what people think about. You know, how much of an impact is this choice going to get us to our goal and how complex is it? That's usually the main thing that people use. That's really cool, but often companies have lots of objectives and those objectives have different weights. So when you're trying to do impact and complexity choices across multiple goals with and, and the goals are weighed differently, it can be really hard to visualize. So Brian drew this like three-dimensional image, and he goes, what we're trying to do is get from the bottom corner of that box, which is zero probability for all three goals, to the top corner, which is 100% probability that we'll meet all the goals. Um, And you can add more dimensions. It's just hard to visualize like a five, six-dimensional object or whatever. Um, So he built like a little tool that we bang all this stuff in, right? The second thing we incorporated into this is like this wisdom of the crowds idea, which I think is probably also something people aren't super big fans of, especially product managers. Like um, this idea of like making decisions based on consensus is kind of crazy. So, but there is some logic to it, right? So, if you ask a bunch of people how much an ox weighs, if you ask lots of them, you'll typically get a better answer than if you just ask one or two. So, we just kind of bit the bullet and we thought we'll run an experiment and we started asking people, here are all the goals, here are all the features that we could build, which of these features have the highest probability of getting us towards our objectives. So, you collect all this data uh, and so, one of the challenges was we had lots of goals and we had lots of like things in the backlog and we had lots of people. So, it was like a fair amount of work for people to actually just submit all the information to even get these models built up. And then the third thing that comes up is but if you're just asking everybody, isn't that just kind of taking a vote? And the one thing we didn't talk too much about that sort of Brian and I spoke about this a little bit offline um, was sadly not everyone's opinions matter in the same way. So, there is this kind of element of credibility that we wanted to incorporate into it. So, some people make better bets more often than others and those people typically make better choices. So the idea was to kind of build up a track, a kind of a batting average of individual people that were making bets all day and use that to inform the model and stuff like that. So it was definitely a work in progress, but it was huge amounts of work. That's what we realized. And we always left it really late. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, in, ironically, in the same way that people te- typically abandon frameworks because of some kind of organizational nuance, like some sales team sold something or there's some some particular piece of tech debt that needs to be done. We tried to look at the probability sheets more as guides, not as like we should do this thing. So we printed out these sheets that said, here are all the choices, here are the probabilities for each choice, but then still left it up mostly to um, people's individual opinions, I guess. But I think if we'd have built the product in a way that it could be used really fast, I think it was, um, that would be a lot easier to use, but uh I'm hoping. I'm actually hoping to convince Brian to still work on this. He has a new job now, though, so I think he's a bit busier than he used to be. <laughs> yeah.
1: Something that we've um, discussed before is you know blind auditions, um, and this is probably something that maybe was implemented into the product as well to eliminate those biases. But what are what are what are blind auditions?
2: Yeah. So this is a particular bugbear of mine. So so job interviews are, are notoriously a poor predictor of future performance. And there's this really adorable study where they get a teacher to stand in front of a bunch of students and they get the teacher to teach for about five minutes. And then they ask all the students, would you rate the efficacy of this teacher um, out of 10? And then they ask the same question, but they get the teacher to teach a whole semester. And what they find is the, the scores are basically the same. So people are mostly making up their opinions about people within the first five minutes or so. The rest is just theater. And job interviews are mostly like this. Like mostly you you get a bit of a vibe for if someone's going to be good for the role and then you spend the rest of the time asking these theoretical questions. And 80% of people lie in job interviews. So it's this whole song and dance everyone plays and it's not really helping anyone. And then you've got all these personal biases that come into an in-group bias and people hire the same people that look like them. Uh, And so we just decided to start doing auditions which is basically how a orchestra would hire someone, right? They, they don't get them to come in and they go, tell me about a time when you played a really difficult piece. Like that, that's not how people get, you know, first chair and a violin or something. So we would just have people come in and do these tasks. Uh, and I wrote this kind of article about it and people thought it was really interesting. But truthfully, it's actually just the same job interview Google have been doing for product managers forever. As far as I know, I think Facebook and Amazon do a pretty similar thing. Um, but yeah, the idea is that you get to see how people perform under pressure, you're giving them real challenges. It's pretty grueling. Like I would definitely say it's pretty grueling. As I, like I've done it for other companies as well. And it's yeah, it's pretty stressful. Um, but yeah, we did it. It had a it had a pretty good impact in terms of working out whether someone could do the creative work. I should explain, maybe I'll explain the audition. Is that like I
1: was about to ask because yeah. you know every- recruiting engineers you set them a tech challenge and you exactly. said they coded it right or not so what would, it, yeah, what would it look like for a product manager
2: yeah and that's true designers and engineers do this now like this mm-hmm. is the thing but for those more conceptual roles it's a bit harder so we asked three questions basically so we ask a strategic question a creative question and an analytical question okay. so the strategic question is like should we get into this new market you know, should should uh, Apple build a self-driving car? Like that's kind of an interesting strategy question. You know, it depends on their purpose, right? Yeah. So The strategy question is, you know, we used to encourage it more like you should have a dialogue with the interviewer. You should really question them like a, like a management consultant would. Uh, and your job is to really like think critically about the market and the strategy of the company and know what the company's mission is. Because the last thing you want is you don't want product managers building things they want. You want things that really align to the strategy of the company. So really what you're doing in the strategy questions, you're saying, you know, we have this opinion about where the company should go. I want your opinion to be informed by that. That's really the strategy question. Yeah. The creative question is like the most fun one, I think. It's it's really an opportunity to show your ability to go from, I don't know what we should build at all, to you should build this in like 15 minutes. And it uses this thing called the Circles Framework. Um, The one question we used to ask a lot, we don't ask it anymore because we wrote about it too much, (laughs) is um, design me a fridge for a blind person. So, the problem with some candidates is they'll immediately go into solution mode. They'll say, like, it should be like this and like this. But the circles framework is a really nice way of just walking people through the problem. So, the C, it's like an abbreviation. So, the C is like clarify the problem space. So, what kind of fridge? Is it like a chest fridge? Is it a tall fridge? Is it one of the ones with glass in it? What kind of blind? Is it colorblind? Have they been blind from birth? Are they blind in one eye? You know, these all change the way you think of the problem. Um, And then what you do is you work out some what what do people need? You work out a persona. You list a bunch of solutions. You evaluate the the differences between those solutions, and then you provide, like, a recommendation. So that's kind of the creative question. Uh, and then the analytical question is basically a Fermi estimation or a market-sizing estimation. I struggle with this personally. Like, I'm not the best, best one on this. Um, engineers do really well on this stuff. People don't like this question because it's really hard and it's really grueling, but it is really useful in the workplace. So it's really like the old, in the old days, people would ask these dumb questions like how many manhole covers are in Seattle? And that's not super helpful. But the reason it's useful in practice is because often you sit with stakeholders in the business and they say, hey, we've got this great idea and everybody wants this feature. And then you go, well, how many people want this feature exactly? Like, how many people want it? And they go, oh, so it's like just like two hundred. And you go, okay, of those two hundred, how many are we going to win? So you're probably going to win about thirty percent of those deals. Um, and then how much money are you going to make from each one of those deals? And what's the average churn of each account? And how much lifetime are we going to make? And then you go, well, how much is it going to cost to build? And you can you can quickly do these really large scale calculations over the table. And the beauty of being able to do these Fermi estimations really quickly is you can can very quickly work out if something is a good idea just with like back of the envelope calculations. But if you have to take all that stuff back into the team and waste everyone's time, it's, it's kind of a bit unnecessary. So these Fermi estimations are really handy. And I think while they can sound a bit ridiculous, like how many golf balls could fit in a swimming pool, it does show someone's ability to break down problems really quickly. And I am definitely not great at these, but I, I have practiced them pretty religiously as well. And I, th- I think they are useful. I think they're a great market sizing tool. I've used them with executive teams to shut conversations down that were just kind of going nowhere. Um, I think they're really handy. So yeah. that's the audition. Um, and we also also used to look for these two other attributes, which uh, Grace, who was one of the product directors, introduced, Um it was looking for people i think that were curious and maybe something like maybe empathetic or something like i can't actually remember but um and then we would look at those two dimensions across the three questions
1: yeah because yeah. it's hard to assess someone's curiosity and empathy in
2: yeah an interview
1: and i, I guess feel it's like very i'm wrong. questions properly
2: yeah i feel like i'm right. it was definitely curiosity was one of them uh oh I, no i remember it was curiosity and persuasiveness Ah. those are the two dimensions we looked for yeah
1: yeah Yeah. and something that i'm slowly starting to see happen is the role of a product manager getting broken down into different roles um it's you know no one's perfect at everything um but yet product managers are expected to do so many different things do you see that happening as well and in in your world? And do you think that the product manager role can be broken down into lots of different positions? Do you think that's going to be beneficial?
2: I think there's there's sort of two things about this splitting the role thing, right? So, um, so, so like some companies will have product managers and product owners and business analysts and stuff. Some companies will just have one product person in the team that does all of those functions. Uh, I think if you have the luxury of having tons of staff that you know hyper specialized roles that can be useful um i think there's probably a bit of a diminishing return personally um i've also i've also been my mind's been changed a bit about this like i used um when we were at whisper uh i i didn't see much value in having you know bas and product owners in the roles and stuff like that but As we hired more and more people, and more and more people complained to me about it, I I definitely just sort of changed my tune. Like I just sort of kind of went, "Oh, okay, maybe I'm wrong." You know, this this is always always a possibility. (laughs) Uh, So, I think that's kind of a thing that goes on in the industry now. Um, But I do, but I, I have thought a little bit about what product managers spend most of their time on, and had some kind of different views about it. Like I just, I caught up with Virginia, who's a a product director out at CultureAmp. We were having this chat about it. And if I didn't know anything about product management, like if I didn't know what this job was or what people do, and I asked myself, like, what do I actually want out of a team? There are these two big things that I think 50% of the product management community just can't do. Uh, And when I say they can't do it, they just can't get to it. So... There are two sorts of product managers in this world. There are people that work at big companies that usually have really established product market fit. They're able to spend lots of time with the customer and work on strategy and really work out good experiments. I don't speak to a lot of those people. Most people I speak to are in companies that are really struggling to find product market fit. And these people spend all of their time focused inside at the organization in which they work. They don't speak to customers anymore. They run experiments. They spend 90% of their time in meetings just going, how did I get into this mess? Um, I think for that second group, like that latter group, it's made me think about these two things that I think the job is really for. So, one is that I, I think someone needs to be looking outside into the land of the customer and into the land of like the market and what competitors are doing. And then I think there is this other job, which is about you've got these choices that you want to build. You probably want to build some experiment to prove whether one of those choices is statistically significant enough to roll out to the rest of your user base, which is kind of what we would do for like a vaccine, right? We would develop a vaccine, we would give it to some human trials, and then if it was effective, we would give it to the rest of the population. Both of these parts of the job are really fun and everyone wants to do it. But that second group, people aren't really getting to those tasks. So I kind of asked myself, like, if I had another business, like, would I hire product managers again? I I probably wouldn't. I'd probably like to experiment with this idea of having two totally separate roles. So one is what I've referred to as like a value manager. And that person is directly focused outside of the organization. No internal meetings for these people. (laughs) Um, And really get them to represent the customer inside of the team. So they're kind of trying to you know, make sure that the team understands like what the customer's needs are, um, where the market's going, all that sort of stuff. And then have this second role, which is really about ensuring that the choices that the team make are really going to work for the customer like and they can prove it. So whether that's setting up experiments, whether that's kind of working with the design team. Uh, I think I'd like to try something like that. Like I'm not necessarily saying it would work. Um, there's definitely some gaps. Like, you know, people ask questions about well, who who decides? There's always that choice. Like, who decides? I, I think there are I think there are better decision making frameworks than just saying that role is really cool. It should call all the shots. I think there's um, Peter Haas, who's the VP of strategy at Culture Ampst, actually talking a bit about this at the moment with a new company he's got. Uh, whether there's actually a way of creating a more open way of making decisions. You know, I th- I, I kind of I kind of back that idea. I think it doesn't necessarily being a product manager doesn't necessarily mean you're always going to make the best choice. I'd rather have something that's a bit more open-minded, maybe a bit more forward-looking. But yeah, that's that's definitely something I would love to try. It would probably double your payroll count, which is probably not ideal. But um, I think it's I think it's worth considering. But then I don't know. Purists would say just be like the other companies that have their act together, uh, which there's probably merit in that too. Um, who knows? I think it'd be interesting to try.
1: Yeah, you know, copying what someone else has done doesn't always necessarily work. I think reinventing the wheel is what keeps life exciting. Yeah. Um, maybe that's something you can get your customer success team trying to focus on. You know, they're speaking to the customers all the time. They're in all of their problems. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. And and I think also it might create some interesting opportunities for, to think about how cross-functional teams are really set up. Like if you go to most companies, they all look the same and if you ask people why, I don't think anyone's really thought about it in a really long time. And there are some companies that are actually, like, have sort of gone, mm, we're going to do it our own way. Like, UpBank is pretty different. As far as I know, they don't have lots of product managers in the teams. They run most of their stuff through the design function. Mm-hmm. Um, Basecamp, you know, while it has been mirrored in lots of controversy over the years, is, like, also a company that has decided to just go its own way. Yeah, I think... I mean, we, most people get into this business and start, you know, they talk about first principles and stuff like that, but I don't think anyone thinks about that too deeply when it comes to how the organisations are set up. And that's kind of fun. That's like a fun thing to think about.
1: Well, that kind of leads me onto one of your Twitter posts that I read about um, yeah. you thinking what that safe say? is an awful framework. Oh,
2: safe, yeah.
1: Yeah, when, you know, agile is probably, you know, one of the biggest... Um, methodologies that people are using at the moment why do you think it's so bad
2: I think safe look safe um, we had a we had a crack at that at Whisper. Yeah. yeah uh, it was at a time where we were looking for like a new delivery model to just keep everyone organized across multiple teams uh, and at the time you know we had a new head of delivery who was who was talking about introducing it uh, and I I kind of just went along with it. I was like, oh look, someone's here. They're doing it. I don't have to do it. I was really busy at the time, mm-hmm. and we just sort of gave it a crack. And sort of after we decided to make that decision, I actually went out and just sort of started asking people. I was like, hey, you know, what do people think of sa- safe? And um, I've never I've never got so many strong opinions about it. Like people just said, it's a face worth it's a fate worse than worse than death. It's the <laughs> worst thing I've ever done in my entire life. Um, it nearly, like, you know, people were just saying, like, it nearly gave me a heart attack and all this. I was like, I actually, I posted something about LinkedIn, just asking a question, and when all this heat started coming in, I just, I took it off because I didn't want to scare anyone at the company <laughs> at the time, to be honest. Um, but as I as I got to be involved in it, uh, yeah, it's 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 not a good idea. Like, it's definitely not a good idea. It's very, it's very sort of top-down. It's very bureaucratic. It's the, it's the kind, it's, it's what a, my, my opinion of it is, you know, if you were sort of ANZ Bank or something like that, and you needed someone to communicate agile principles in a way that ANZ Bank would try and be up for, and it would be in a language that they would understand, you know, safe seems like it's really set up to sell for, for you know, agile consultants to really sell into those really large organizations. But I have met nobody that speaks highly of it. Absolutely none. Um, the, no, maybe that's not quite true. Of the ones who have, they are typically ones who are selling safe consulting to really large enterprises and things like that. But it was just, it was sort of not, it was all the bad parts of software develop, delivery and sort of none of the good thing. But there was one thing I did like, which, you know, I d- we did this thing where we got everybody together for three days and kind of synchronise the plans, and I did think that was really good. I thought that was really great, and um, but you probably don't need Safe to do that. Uh, Ray, who was a our VP of engineering, he was he was super adamant about how horrible this was. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, I gave it a go. I definitely definitely gave it a go, but I wouldn't. I, w- I would definitely not recommend it for anybody.
1: Interesting. I'm going to go and do my own research. Yeah, if you, if you if you're asking just people. You can see,
2: yeah, you can see articles about it, like just people talking about having given it a go. It's, it's not it's not positive. It's it's def- if you count the amount of articles that are positive and negative, you I'd be surprised if you could find ten good ones.
1: Well, it just goes to show sometimes not copying something is the right way of doing things.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, I'm really eager to get your opinion on this, Brad. So, uh, since doing the podcast, I've talked a lot about roadmaps and speak to a lot of product engineers, uh, product managers. Sorry about roadmapping. Mm. And there's quite a lot of controversy about whether they are valuable or not. And what's you know, considering your reinventing productization, uh, sorry prioritization. I don't know why I'm getting that so muddle today. <laughs> what's your opinion on roadmaps?
2: Um, I think. What's my actual opinion about it? I, I read this story about how they were a waste of time once. and I, A lot of people said it was true, copped a bit of heat over it, but um, most of my opinions about roadmaps being a waste of time are just because I've never, ever worked anywhere where what's on the roadmap has ever matched up to what got built, That's which says same. to me, like, something's not something's not right. Like, irrespective of what you think about them, if you just make observations and you go, well, is what's on your roadmap what got built? I mean that that says that says something's not working, uh, but I think where people maybe I think where a lot of the the controversy comes from is people talk about roadmaps like these big lists of features, which some people would argue is more of a release plan and not an actual roadmap. So if you if you Google you know what is a roadmap and what is a thematic roadmap and what is a strategic roadmap. You're getting you're getting into these kind of like grey areas of what something actually means. I think if you're talking about roadmaps through the lens of these big thematic choices, like we're going to get into video or we're gonna we're gonna accelerate our mobile offering, like if those are the things on your roadmap, those are probably pretty good, right? Um, but if you're getting into these kind of like widget level conversations and you're forecasting anything further than about six weeks. It's just fantasy. Like, it's just not happening because it's just things happen. Like, you know, someone, some marketing person comes in, they're like, hey, have you heard about these NFTs? Like, we should get into this. Like, it just, the business changes every day. And the idea that you're going to predict what's going to happen in six weeks, is just, it's just it just doesn't happen in practice. So, I think any time just spent hypothesizing about what you're going to build, you're just going to have your heart broken. Something's going to change and you're going to have to, move away from it. Um, so I think that's kind of where the tension comes from about roadmaps. It's not It's not necessarily that people shouldn't make plans. It's that the more finite the plans are and the longer those plans are, the the lower the probability that, that will actually be what gets launched at the end of the day. So any effort that goes into that is probably just a waste of time. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. Like I, I tend to tell people, like I'm doing some consulting work for this, this really interesting business called Buy Many at the moment. Uh, and when they were originally talking about building this piece of software, I just said, just don't do any, just don't plan anything longer than six weeks because six weeks is a really neat amount of time. This is also from uh shape up Ryan Singer's model at Basecamp. It's like four weeks of work plus a week either side for planning, which I think everyone can sort of wrap their head around, but six month roadmaps, five year roadmaps, pretty wild. Wow, you know, like a fortune all... teller at that point.
1: <laughs> we've all seen in the last couple of years that you literally can't plan for anything. So. <laughs>
2: exactly exactly right. Everyone knows this. Yeah. Everyone knows this.
1: And look, would love to know a little bit more about you. You've had such an interesting career, Brad. What's been your greatest achievement? It sounds like you've had a few.
2: Definitely people. Yeah, definitely people. Like it took me a long time to work out People talk about finding their purpose and stuff. Like I I frankly, I used to think this was a bit bit nonsense. Um but I think I've definitely had some epiphanies about what's really important to me and definitely finding potential in others that is unrealized is definitely a big motivator for me. So giving people opportunities that wouldn't have normally had them, trying to really nurture talent. I mean, that's like a hundred percent of why I get out of bed every day. The software's like mostly immaterial. I just kind of want to do that all day. Uh, That's always been it. Just giving people like chances, like giving people opportunities to prove themselves, uh, that's 100% of the best part of this job. Yeah.
1: And on the flip side, what would be one of the biggest obstacles that you've faced or had to overcome?
2: Uh, Probably more... Personal things, you know, like more not not so much technical stuff. I think all the software things, like saying, um, you know, some sort of like, oh, this feature didn't work, and it was really hard, and we lost all these users, or servers fell over, and you know, like all that stuff in hindsight is not really that big of a deal in the light of day. Like things just happen. Um, I think the biggest obstacles are always people, you know, like. Things about yourself that you don't really think are bad but are probably bad, but you can't see them. You know, like those, <laughs> those are, like, it's the unconscious incompetent stuff. You know, things yeah. you're not good at that you can't see. Like, those are the, I think those are the barriers that hold people back the most. Uh, and just, yeah, like things of my own personality that I've thought I've had to work on or develop over the years. You know, like, mis- you know, for sure mistakes I've made. Um those have always been the hardest things to work out, but you—that's where all the learning is too. That's why you get better. If you can kind of self-reflect on the choices that you made and what you do better, uh, probably, probably things like that have been the biggest barriers. Um, but no, nothing, nothing, nothing super professionally. I've, I've been honestly, frankly, just super lucky uh, in my career. Like I've just sort of just had people in my corner that thought I did a good job with something and just gave me opportunities. Like I've been incredibly, incredibly lucky. I would say nearly none of it is down to talent or
1: I doubt it's- that very much. <laughs> I, that, but I say
2: I say this to people and it's it's a genuine belief. Like I just I've you know if I think back to my first job and this is kind of where this this notion of you know helping people find you know finding potential in people is you know like I was a high school dropout. I you know, was just kind of in a a bit of a delinquent, frankly. Um, And then I went to this, I was at this business school when I was really young. And yeah, this teacher sort of came up to me and said, hey, there's this company that's approached the school and they want someone smart to come and work at this business. Do you want to go and do it? And I was like, yeah, I'll just, so I tested out of the school, just did all the exams just then and then went to work for this company and it changed the whole direction of my life. Like it, I got to work with just really, really smart people who went on to do really, really great things. Um, the next job I got was from connections that I made there. And, you know, if, if, if that sort of individual moment hadn't happened, my life would have gone in a really different direction. So just kind of trying to help other people in those moments as well is kind of what motivates me at the moment. But that's that's just like a twist of fate. It could have easily just been another way, right? There could have been this other path. Uh and I think I hear a lot of people talk about their success as if it, as if they're, you know, it's it's all them. But I think luck plays an enormous part in people's lives, way more than people give it credit for. And I, I just I feel incredibly lucky. So kind of wait for the other penny to drop. But
1: you've had yeah. a lot of sliding doors moments. I love that movie. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, it's true. I mean your life's your life can change in an instant too. Like I think, I never, I never think this is going to last forever. Yeah. Well, it definitely
1: sounds that's, like it. that's a Some awesome ideas and I definitely love the controversy here and, and you sharing your different opinions, Brad. How can people stay connected with you? Because I'm sure a lot of people definitely want to. Uh
2: They can just reach out to me on Twitter or something like that. I have this Medium blog as well, which people can reach. Uh, I can probably just post the links in the show notes or something.
1: Yeah, we'll definitely put those in the show notes. And lastly, what would be your one piece of advice for product managers?
2: Oh, what would be my one piece of advice? I think I would definitely work really hard on your ego. I think this job is is tremendously, like it, it's really it's a job that requires, it can give you a lot of power and I think that can really mess people up if you're given the ability to make choices on behalf of others. The best product managers I know are like hands down the most humble. They don't think they're right. They're always like asking whether they're wrong. Uh, usually a telltale sign of a really a terrible product manager, Someone's like super confident, all their decisions are going to be right. So I think just just go into every like meeting and every interaction, just going, how could I be wrong? Like that's the, that's the best way to do it. Just assume you're wrong about everything and just ask questions all the time. And you'll probably be great. That's the, that's, that's my piece of advice.
1: I'm going to take that piece of advice on. (laughs) Amazing. Brad, thank you so, so much. It was great speaking
2: to you. You too. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to the Product Edge brought to you by Middleton Executive. You can head to theproductedge.com.au to subscribe to Australia's number one podcast for all things product management. I would love for you to subscribe, rate, and leave us a review. Until next time, I look forward to introducing you to more product leaders, entrepreneurs, creators, and hustlers who will share their insights and experiences to help you level up and reach your full potential.